You may be seated. Well, have you ever been a fool? I know I have, and I think we could all go around sharing many stories. In fact, Tate and I got to do that just a little bit this morning. Um, whether it was from our childhood or perhaps even last week, we have all been fools at least once, but if not just once, countless times, more than likely. You see, it's easy for us to spot folly when we're not the ones who are fools, and yet, all at the same time, when we look back at our, our younger years, even if it was just yesterday, uh, we often feel ashamed at our folly. One of these times that I was absolutely foolish, I think I probably nearly killed my grandpa. You see, I uh, was moving, I don't think I've ever seen my wife, like, what in the world? Uh, I don't think I've actually shared anyone, shared this story with anyone before because I was so embarrassed about it. Uh, but I was just moving into my first apartment and I had uh, just bought a, a new, well, not new, used washer and dryer. And, uh, but the, the pigtail, the plug-in wasn't the right plug-in. And so I called my grandpa up and he helped me out how to, to, to put the new plug-in onto the dryer so it fit the attachment. And as he was showing me how to screw it in, I thought I'd be the smart guy to make sure it fit in the socket while he was screwing it together and pop! And nearly shocked him and luckily it didn't. But uh, yeah, what a fool. Uh, I don't even know if my parents know that story actually, but uh, if they do, hopefully they'll hear it in the sermon. But uh, Today's psalm is about another deadly folly, uh, in fact, one far deadlier than a shock. Um, this is actually no common folly. This is what Spurgeon called the preeminent folly. Psalm 14.1 says this, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. This is the reason of such fools. They believe there is is no God. And it's funny enough that we would even call this reasoning, but this is their argument. This is what they believe. This is what they hold to. And all their actions that follow come from this. They deny God. And the fool, he acts contrary to what he ought to know. He acts contrary to what wisdom would say, and wisdom would say, in fact, that there is a God, and yet he is a fool because he denies what wisdom shows. For there is plenty of evidence to know that God is. You see, the fool denies God despite all these evidences, and I think this is illustrated so clearly in the book of Exodus, where Pharaoh himself was one of these fools. You remember the story in Exodus 3 where God revealed himself to Moses. And Moses said, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. His very name itself shows that God is. But what was Moses' first objection in Exodus 4? Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Once again, you already see the voice of the skeptic, the voice of the fool who denies God. And so what the Lord did, you recall, he gave him all these many signs and wonders, whether it was his staff turning into a serpent or his hand becoming leprous and then being made well again. And he said, I'm going to give you signs and wonders and you're going to show this to Pharaoh and he will listen to you. But it wouldn't come easy. And so the Lord did this. He demonstrated all these signs and wonders to Moses. And yet we know Pharaoh, he, he didn't listen. 
Despite all the signs and wonder, Pharaoh's heart remained hardened against God. You remember it in Exodus 5 when, when Moses first goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And so it was. Pharaoh was the fool. Though the evidence was plain time and time again, even to all the way through the ten plagues, and even after his son had died, Pharaoh continued to play the fool as he pursued after Israel, even to his own shame and demise. And so Pharaoh was the fool then, and such folly continues even through all the ages when people continue to deny God. And it's not just Pharaoh, but even us today, we have ample evidence for us to, to believe in God. And Psalm 19 tells us the heavens themselves, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And so we should understand the heavens themselves, they speak. They tell us something. They tell us that God is glorious and splendor. And yet the fool would rather believe in the Big Bang Theory or evolution rather than a God. And yet we ought to know better. Big Bang, they don't create life, but they destroy life. Even the fool knows that bombs are meant for warfare and not for medicine. And even, let's say, if evolution, let's just take that for a moment and consider if evolution could possibly be true in order for there to be life. If we took an animal, let's say a cat, and dropped it in the ocean, and it sunk to the bottom of the sea, what chance does it have at survival? How soon will it evolve those gills that are necessary in order for it to live? You see, a big bang or millions of years of evolution are the theories of fools who would deny their creator. But the heavens themselves declare the glory of God. But creation does more than just declaring the glory of God. It also demonstrates God's care for his creatures. Jesus expects us to catch on to this when he's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, look at the birds of the air. These things that God created. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet... Your Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And why are you anxious about your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field today, which is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith you even notice that the issue that he's dealing with even there is a, a lack of faith a lack to trust God to believe in him so Jesus is showing us just by the creation itself this simple creation that we could see just by looking out the window this morning that God he sustains his his creatures and yet despite all this evidence the fool continues to go on and deny not God's care alone, but even his existence. Romans picks up on this very theme. Romans 1.20, Paul writes, for his invisible attributes, that, that's God. God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. 
But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Have you noticed that those who are wise in the world seem to be actually the biggest fools of all? Those who have the most knowledge about the world and creation and science and all the things that should point us to God, and yet, in all of this, they suppress the truth. So it's not just Pharaoh who demonstrates such folly as to have the evidence for God, yet to ignore such a thing. But even today, the atheist himself demonstrates him to be the fool all the same. But it's not just Pharaoh. It's not, just, it's not just the atheist, at least the one who professes to be an atheist, but even God's people at times show themselves to be fools. In fact, maybe even worse fools than all the rest. In Exodus 32, shortly after God delivered Israel from Egypt, through all the many mighty works that they had seen, and not only that, but they had survived it all and lived to see the day, you remember what they did. They rebelled against God all the same. They, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Here it is in Exodus 32, verse 4. This is Aaron. Speak, this is Aaron is talking about. And Aaron received the gold from their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Only a fool would take God's gift and turn it into a God. And so if, if Pharaoh was a fool, how much more of a fool was Israel? And if Israel was a fool for not believing God then, then how much more fools are we today if we go on denying God and worshiping his creation instead of worshiping him? You see, we might go, well, you know, a Pharaoh, if I could see what Pharaoh saw, I would have been like him. I would have, I would have turned, I would have repented, I would have believed. And if we saw what Israel saw, we wouldn't be like them either. And yet what we have is far more than what they had. What we have in the gospel is clearer evidence for God than what Pharaoh and Israel had combined. For what we have in the gospel is God himself in the flesh coming to us in Jesus Christ. And Jesus, he demonstrated his divinity. He showed that he had the authority of God to teach with wisdom and authority. And not only in his words was he demonstrated to have authority in his teaching, but his words themselves showed to be powerful, to have the very power of God himself who could calm the wind and the sea with just a word, who could raise the dead with just a word. And even in his own death was able to rise again. And yet the fool reasons that Jesus is not God, but instead would say that he is a servant of Satan. So if Pharaoh and Israel were fools in Exodus, then how much greater was the folly of Israel in the days of Jesus? And yet the fool today is no better. Despite all the evidences, we still find reason to deny God. And if we don't deny him with our mouth, we doubt him in our hearts. Perhaps we deny God because we think that in our denial, God won't deal with our sin. 
Or perhaps the, the atheist, he denies God because he knows under the conviction of the spirit that isn't actually dwelling with him, but nonetheless working on his heart that he is guilty before God. And so instead of acknowledging that guilt, he denies God altogether. But denying the, the reality of God does not change reality, does it? This is a concept that young kids don't realize at first. It's called object permanence, that objects, they still exist even when we don't see them or when they don't hear them. And so this is why our, our young kids love the game of peekaboo. And yet, what is atheism but a divine peekaboo thinking that if we don't see God, if we don't hear him, if we don't acknowledge him, therefore he can't exist. Like Adam and Eve hiding from God there in the garden thinking that they could possibly hide from the all-seeing God who knows all things. And yet what we see in our text this morning is not only does the Lord exist, but he also sees. Verses 2 and 3, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And this is what he finds. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. The fool would deny God, but this does not change God, for he is, and not only does he exist, but he also sees. He doesn't just see our sin, but he will also judge our sin. So then we might consider this morning, why did Pharaoh... And the Pharisees and every other fool deny what is plain to them about God. The answer, because folly goes far deeper than the mind. Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. This is folly's root. Folly's root goes all the way to the heart. You'll notice it is not the atheist who simply speaks with the tongue that denies God. And it's not just the mere intellect or that thereof that makes for an atheist, but he denies God deep down in his heart. And so denying God, it is not merely an issue of distorted logic, but rather it's a, an issue of distorted love. You see, it wouldn't be difficult to convert a fool if it was simply a matter of reasoning with the mind. If that was the case, then Pharaoh would have certainly let Israel go. And if that was the case, the Pharisees would have certainly believed that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of the living God. And if it was a matter of reason, well, then we would not be slow of heart to believe all God's promises, let alone to believe in God. But the problem isn't a lack of evidence. It's not that God has left us in the dark to try to find our way, to try to find him. No, it's not this at all. This is the problem. Fools love darkness rather than the light. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he does not believe in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his works should be exposed. You see, you can't reason with a fool 
Because it's not reason alone that keeps him in his sin, but it is a love for his sin that keeps him in the dark. And since he loves what is evil, he would rather deny God altogether than turn to God in repentance. That's why one can win the argument with the fool without winning their soul to God. And so Spurgeon, he gives preachers this advice, and I think it's good advice for us as well, if we wish to be soul winners. Spurgeon said, let the preacher aim at the heart and preach the all-conquering love of Jesus. And he will, by God's grace, win more doubters to the faith of the gospel than any hundred of the best reasoners who only direct their arguments to the head. But since folly takes root in the heart, you see, it's not just merely the mind and it's certainly not only in the mouth. The fool can be difficult for us to identify at first. They might not deny God outright. They might not tell you that they don't believe in God, but deep down, they suppress this truth. But once we recognize a few things to look for, it's easy to identify the fool. I actually have an illustration for this this morning. I brought a prop, and it's my, my hat. It's a Mariner's hat. It's well-worn, well-loved. I've had this hat, I don't know for how many years now, but many years, and it's covered in dirt and grime, and I, I wear it often on the weekends. And yet, whenever I wear it, people always ask me, Hey, how are the Mariners doing? I have no idea. <laughs> because I haven't watched baseball or followed it closely since I've been married. And so it is, I can wear the hat, but that doesn't mean I love the team. And yet all the same, we do the same with our faith. We come to church, we profess that we love God with our mouth, and yet all the same when we ask what is it like to walk with the Lord? We have no idea. See, we might not be an atheist outright in our mouth, but in our hearts, we do not believe God because we do not love God. So how might we spot the fool? In fact, how might we spot ourselves if we are found to be the fool? Well, it goes further than just seeing what comes out of the mouth, although that might be an indication, but you must know what is on their heart, what they love, and what they hate. For if they believe in God, they will love God. And if they love God, they will love the things that God loves, and they will hate the things that God hates. But if they do not believe in God, then they will love the world. They will love the darkness. They will love their sin. And it is owing to the fact that their hearts say that there is no God. And so the prophet said, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching the doctrines of the commands of men. And so look at the outcome then of, of such folly. The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. This is folly's result. Every sin is a result of our lack of faith. Every sin at its root is owing to the fact that we do not believe in God. And the result of this is both an act of sin and a passive sin. 
active sin. They do what is evil. That's when the psalmist said they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. If you're curious what those abominable deeds are, the psalmist doesn't go into them, but we see lists of these deeds throughout the New Testament. Galatians 5 says the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And so it is, you might not deny God with your mouth, but whenever you do these things, it is owing to the fact that you lack faith. You do not believe in God as you ought to, for if you believed in Him, you would at least fear God enough to not do these things. For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But those who participate in such active sins without any care show that they are, at, at the heart, atheists, deniers of God, but it's not just in the active sins that we see the wicked doing these things, but even in their passive sins, the fool might be seen. For the fool, he, he fails to do what is good. What David said, there is none who does good. That is, they are not marked by the Spirit of God, who, who bears all these good fruit, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so the fool might not deny God with their mouth, but when you look at their life, you get the indication that their heart is as hard as Pharaoh's, who said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Listen, this morning, I know I'm preaching about atheism in a church full of believers. And yet we would do well to, to examine our life carefully lest we be found to be the fool and not even recognize it. Matthew 7, Jesus says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the man, the wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the flood came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. I wonder how many of us here would say, yeah, I am the fool, for I hear, but I do not do. The rest of the psalm, most of the rest of it at the very least, goes on to describe the sins of the fool. Verses 2 and 3 parallel much of verse 1, but this time from God's perspective. God looking down to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God, and he sees the very same thing, the same corruption, the same lack of good. And then verses 4 and 6 goes on to show not just how they deal with God, these fools that is, but it goes on to show how these people deal with God's people. Verse 4, have they no knowledge? Again, talking about their folly, their foolishness, their lack of sense. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the name of the Lord? That is, they kill God's people as if they were the common commodity of bread on the table. They are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. 
And so once again, these wicked people, they are afraid because though they try to deny God and though they even kill God's people, they know that God is, for God is with his people. And yet that doesn't stop them. They continue. You would shame the plans of the poor. That word plans is the word counsel. You would shame the counsel of the poor. You would mock his wisdom, you fool. And this is his wisdom. The Lord is his refuge. And so you could just about hear Goliath mocking David, putting him to shame as he trusts in the Lord his God. You see, the wicked, they are fools, but not only are they fools in what they do, their folly goes further than that. They go on to kill God's people and shame their plan, their gospel, their truth that they love and adore and found their life upon. So I want us to consider for a moment, what is it then about what we believe that causes the world to hate us so much? What is it about the wisdom that comes from God that causes the fool to kill God's people? You see, the other day I, I got into a, a foolish debate. One I've been thinking about and having a lot lately because I, I recently watched the, the Hobbit movies. And I know most Lord of the Rings fans would say those movies are terrible. And yet, this is what I think. I think they're underrated. I think they're pretty good, actually. I kind of like them. And so I was talking to another Lord of the Rings fan. He said, no, no, no. You know, you're wrong, you're wrong. And yet at the end of the day, we could disagree and he didn't hate me for it. And yet what is it about the profession that there is a God who is holy, who, who defines good and evil, that causes the wicked to persecute God's church? This is no ordinary conversation, is it? This is no ordinary debate. Why do the wicked hate God's people so much? Well, I presume it's because they hate God, and as such, they hate the aroma of Christ that is on his people. For whenever they see God's people, they know that God is. And so let us now consider even further the, the folly and its reach. How far does this folly go? Go back to verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. And as if it wasn't enough just to see it here from David, we hear it again from the Lord. The Lord looked down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And this is the Lord's assessment. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So how far does this folly reach? Well, it reaches into every single one of our lives, into every single one of our hearts. You see, God's people often look at themselves as if we were better off than the world, when in fact, the only thing that sets us apart from the world is not our wisdom, not our strength, not our goodness, but God's grace. The Christian, you see, we know this, we should, and if you don't, you better hear it. The Christian is no better than the world apart from grace. For that matter, the Jews were no better off than the Gentiles either. It's interesting, this psalm, if you read through it again, you'll get the sense that the wicked, the world is, is the wicked one, the Gentiles, and yet 
Israel has this hope. They belong to God. They are God's people. And so they set their hope in this. God will come and he will make it right. He will destroy the wicked. And so they take refuge in the Lord. And so the Jews, for that matter, would have read this and seen themselves as God's people. Those who are pretty good. And you can hear it all over the place in the New Testament, even in, in the rich young ruler when he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit the kingdom? And Jesus asks a different question in response to this question. Why do you call me good? Don't you know that no one is good except for God? And furthermore, he goes on, he starts saying, you know the law, you know what you must do in order to, to earn life. And then the, the rich young ruler says, yes, all these things I've done since my youth. And so after saying, no, you're not good, only God is good, the rich young ruler comes back and says, well, I'm good too. I've, I've done all these things. I, I, I'm included with that a level of goodness, right? No, not at all. And this is what Paul picks up on when he, he quotes this passage in Romans chapter 3. He says, what then? Are the Jews any better off, that is, than the Gentiles? No, not at all. For we have, all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Paul's point is this. Every single one of us is wicked and evil. Deep down in the heart, you might be clean on the outside like a Pharisee, and yet inside you are full of every unclean thing. This is the Lord's judgment. This is what he sees. The Lord, he looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand. Do you have wisdom this morning? Because if you did, you would seek after God. Are there any who understand? Are there any who seek after God? And he says, no. This is what he sees. Again, they have all turned aside. They have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Surely you can pick up on the allusion back to Genesis where God comes down and he assesses the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you remember the story, Abraham starts to, to intercede for the city. He says, if there were 50 righteous men, you wouldn't destroy the whole city on the count of 50, right? Okay, 45, 40, it keeps going all the way down to 10. If there were 10 righteous men, you wouldn't destroy the city, right, on the count of 10? And the Lord gives him his word. No, I wouldn't destroy the city on the account of 10. And so the angels go. And what do they find? Anyone righteous? You've got Lot, Abram's nephew, who tries to give away his daughters. And then even after that, they decide, well, there's clearly nothing good here at all. And so they're gonna, God's going to destroy it. And even still, even Lot himself and his son-in-law is going to go with him. And his wife turns around. They all, even still, don't take seriously the word of God. So they have to get prodded out of the city in order to survive. Now, we are no better off in the world. We who think we would be wise, we who might think we're good, we are just as wretched and wicked as everyone else. Except for the fact that God's grace has restrained us. Except for the fact that God's grace has, has wooed us and brought us to himself. Understand this. This is why I'm a Calvinist. I'm a Calvinist because I know this. I am not good enough to come to God. As a young man, I was a pretty good kid, at least compared to my brother. 
<laughs> and yet comparing myself to my brother might be like comparing myself to, you know, any other sinner. I'm comparing myself to the wrong person. I'm comparing, comparing myself to another sinner when I ought to be comparing myself to God who is perfect. So I'm not a Calvinist because I, I think I'm good. I'm certainly not a Calvinist because I think I'm wise enough to come to God either. If it were not for God's grace, I would still be blind, dead in my sins. And so what does it take in order to believe? Not goodness, not wisdom, but a miracle. And this is the miracle that God has worked in the life of every single one of us who believes. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So what should we do? Well, if you're here today and you are the fool who says there is no God, I would say this, stop looking for evidence. At least not to the point at which you're going to start trying to, to find reasons that are, are beyond your ability to comprehend. Because guess what? Reason will never get you there if you love your sin. So yet you might look for evidence to some extent, but at the end of the day, you must look at your heart. You must look at your sin and come to recognize. Because what's keeping you from God? Your love for sin? What is the Lord looking for? Is he looking for someone who's without sin? Well, not in this song, because he knows better than to think that there is ever such a person apart from his son who is perfect and sinless. And so we should ask again, what is the Lord looking for? The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. And so do you understand this, that God is holy? And that he does not look blindly at your sin, but he sees it and he will judge it? Do you understand that you are a sinner who will face the wrath of God? If so, then do not be a fool. Do not go on suppressing the truth. But understand this, God, he is. He is Yahweh. And if you understand these things, then you're off to a good start. But the fear of the Lord, as we've said before, is the beginning of knowledge. So understand that he is holy and you are not. And let that knowledge drive you to fear him. But don't stop there. If you understand this, then, then seek after God. For those who understand will seek him. And understand this, God has given us Jesus Christ in the place of our sins. And so if you understand that you are a sinner, and you understand that Jesus came to die for your sins, then take refuge in him this morning by placing your faith in him for the forgiveness of your sins. Now to the believer, what should we do? Well, this ought to make us humble. We ought to see here the total depravity of man, including ourselves. And in this, we ought to see that God's grace is owing to the fact that we are saved. And so we ought to continue in humility 
through repentance and submitting ourselves to God's word. But furthermore, we ought not to boast of our wisdom or our works, for such boasting is a contradiction to the grace that we have received. We are not Christians because of our greatness. Rather, we are what we are because of the grace of God. So, brothers and sisters, worship him. Be in awe of his grace this morning and wait on him. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Let me pray for you.